your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, excuse me, John chapter 15, please. John chapter 15. And if you're just joining us this morning or haven't been with us uh, before, Sunday mornings in the 11 o'clock hour, we're working our way through the gospel of John and the life of Christ, and we are in John chapter 15 right now. And our text verses this morning are going to be verses 12 through 17. So we'll go ahead and read those verses and talk about a few things and we'll get into what the Lord has for us this morning. Appreciated the Sunday school hour as well. And interesting how uh, it meshes. Interesting how the Lord has led this way. And and, uh, Brother Humphrey and I don't talk about necessarily exactly what particular thing he's going to be teaching um, on any particular Sunday. And generally, we communicate about the direction things are going. But um, you'll find it interesting, I believe, as well. And the Lord has something here for us uh, today. And uh, the Word of God is making that very clear. Chapter 15, verse 12, the Bible says, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should... Go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. John chapter 14 and verse 31 uh, closed with Jesus saying to his disciples, Arise, let us go hence. And here's the context in which all of John chapter 15, all of John chapter 16 is really uh, encased in. And prior to this, uh, the disciples and Jesus were in the upper room together. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified less than 24 hours from this moment. Jesus is taking the time to uh, invest into His disciples and to teach them, to prepare them for the time when He was going to be gone. And He told them, I'm going to go away, but if I go, I'm going to come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so, in all of this, that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Uh, Judas is going to betray Jesus. Uh, Peter's going to deny the Lord. Jesus is going to be taken before a a kangaroo court, falsely accused, uh, tried uh, illegally. He's going to be crucified. He's going to... He's going to die. He's going to give his life. And all of the things that are going to happen to Jesus in the next uh, just hours, Jesus is really investing himself into his disciples, not thinking of himself. And the disciples didn't really understand all that was happening here. They were receiving instruction from the Lord, but they didn't know exactly what was coming. Jesus prophesied that one of you is going to betray me. Uh, Jesus prophesied and told Peter that, You're going to deny me three times. And so John chapter 14 closes out that time where Jesus and the disciples were together in the upper room. And 
Um, Judas, by this point, had gone out. They had observed the Lord's Supper. It's not recorded in the Gospel of John, but the other Gospels do record that for us. And then Jesus uses these words, let us go hence. And it implies to us or suggests to us that they are going somewhere. And as they are, Jesus continues to teach. Well, if we look at the other Gospels, we find that they're walking or going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus is still preparing his disciples for when he would be gone. And he uses this opportunity as they walk to teach another valuable eternal truth to his disciples and one that we must learn as well. Last time we said that this chapter is divided up into three sections. The first verses 1 through 11 we called a parable. It was the vine and the branches and it deals with our relationship and our fellowship to Jesus Christ. This second section that we'll consider today is a commandment, verses 12 through 17, and it deals with our relationship to others. The last section in this chapter, verses 18 through 27, is a warning, and it deals with our relationship to the world. Now, like I said, last week we, we dealt with verses 1 through 11, where Jesus taught them concerning the vine and the branches he said, I'm the vine, ye are the branches. Without me, ye can do nothing. You must abide in the vine or abide in me in order to fulfill God's purpose for your life. And that is to bear fruit. If we are not bearing fruit, we're not fulfilling God's purpose for our life. A branch not producing fruit is good for nothing. And likewise, a Christian that is not bearing fruit or the character of Christ being formed in them is, number one, either not saved or they're not abiding in Christ. And so Jesus was teaching the importance of our relationship and our fellowship to Christ in order to fulfill God's will and God's purpose in our life. This second section that we're going to consider today is a commandment the commandment of Jesus. And we see in verse 12, right away, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And we're going to talk about that today. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us with your word today, and or that you just give us understanding. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be tender and soft to, to the truth of God. And, and Lord, that we'd not operate in pride as was talked about this morning in the Sunday school hour, and Lord, that we would just on purpose, uh, Lord, ask you, Lord, teach me, and Lord, I pray that I would submit and surrender and yield to you in whatever capacity you desire today, that your will is done and that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Verse 12 gives us the command right away, <clears throat> and the command of Christ here is that of brotherly love. He says, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And we're going to get to that command to love others or brotherly love in just a little bit. But I want to draw out the fact that the command that Jesus gives here is also contained inside of a statement that Jesus makes. The statement that Jesus makes is, you love others as I have loved you. The statement that Jesus is making is that I love you, and I want you 
to love other people as I have loved you. I want you to love people the same way that I have loved you, and also the same way that my Father has loved me. I don't want you to love people with your version of what love is or what you think it is. I want you to love others as I have loved you. And in this chapter alone, Jesus uses this first personal pronoun of I, which puts a lot of emphasis on something. He uses it 11 times. He says, I, as I have loved you. Um, Jesus said, I am the vine. Jesus said, I abide in you. Jesus said, I have loved you. Jesus said, I have spoken unto you. Jesus said, I have called you, etc., etc. Eleven times Jesus says it this way, as I have done this or I have done that. In each case, the importance of the words that are being spoken lies in the character of the one who is speaking. You understand that? The importance of what is being said is contained or lies in the character of the one who is actually doing the talking. In other words, these aren't just regular words from an ordinary guy. There's a lot of emphasis in the words, but it's because of who is actually doing the speaking. That's why Jesus says, I have loved you. And you love others as I have loved you. I have chosen you. The point is, these aren't just regular words. These aren't just any words from an ordinary man. They become extra important because of who is doing the talking. These impressive eyes of Jesus, just in our text alone, reveal some very glorious truth about him and it's supposed to be all about him and i want to draw out some of those today as we get down to the command of the lord to love others and it ought to encourage and challenge our hearts today and so i want to draw out some of these statements that jesus makes and what do we see inside of these statements the first statement is in verse 12 jesus says i have loved you and what we see in the statement that I have loved you is a whole lot of God's grace towards you and me. What we see is grace in this statement. I have loved you. And I want you to think of it for a second, okay? If you're here this morning and you're saved, understand this and remember this and think of this. You, at one point in your life, were alienated from God. You were considered afar off. You were considered not a child of God, but an enemy of God. You didn't have access to God. You didn't enjoy the benefits of God or all that God is. You, the Bible says that you were sometime afar off. But now you're made nigh to the Lord because I have loved you. And I want you to understand the grace that is, that is demonstrated in this statement of Jesus, I have loved you. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is a great chapter. There's several thoughts in here related to this, this very principle that we're, we're drawing out. How at one point in our life, we were away from God, afar off from God. 
But now we can enjoy fellowship and a relationship with God because Jesus said, because I've loved you. Now notice Ephesians 2 and verse 12. The Bible says, I'm in Philippians, so I should get to Ephesians. Hang on a second. There we go. Ephesians 2 verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, contextually, the Apostle Paul is talking about Gentile believers and Jews. And contextually, he's saying, you were without hope and without God. You didn't have... you. You didn't have God, but you also didn't even have the the privileges of being a Jew. And there's a difference between Jews and Gentiles here. And he says you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't have the, the covenant of promise being a Jew. You didn't have hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ, you that sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So he's saying, yeah, as Gentiles, in Jesus Christ, you are now brought into the family of God. You are now uh, not afar off anymore, but you're part, you're, you're joined. But then notice this, skip down to verse 17. He says, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Verse 18, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He says there, because of the grace of God, He came and preached peace to you when you were afar off, and now you're not a stranger anymore, but you're a fellow citizen. And you're of the household of God, he says. He says, you that were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You that were ignorant of me, and you that walked according to the course of this world, are now following Christ. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, and you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But note this, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. What was the thing that brought uh, nigh those who were afar off? What was the thing that, that caused him to preach peace unto you when you were afar off? It was God in his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, that made us alive in Christ. You that were enemies of God are now made sons of God. Now here's the point, and here's the application. 
We see grace in the statement of Jesus when He says, I have loved you. Because here's the truth. We didn't deserve that God would give us the opportunity to be reconciled to Him. We didn't deserve that He would give us the opportunity to hear truth in our life. Wherever you were before you were saved, in whatever state you were in, God in His love and His mercy came and preached peace to you when you were afar off and gave you the opportunity to hear truth and to be drawn to the Lord. You didn't deserve that. I didn't either. It doesn't matter what you were. It doesn't matter if you were a drunk on the street or it doesn't matter if you were a church kid. It is the only, the, only the grace of God at work in a person's life that even gives us a chance to have any hope. Romans 2 and verse 4 tells us that it is only the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Turn to Titus chapter 3 with me. Titus chapter 3. And look at verse 3. The Bible says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's how you lived. Here's how you were. But the loving kindness and the love of God appeared unto you, and it was shed abroad on you. Now you can be called a son of God. In these simple words... I have loved you. Jesus tells His disciples and He tells us that He has loved us with a love that can only be compared to the love that His Father loved Him with. He said back in our text in verse 9, John 15 and verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. In verse 13, he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that God the Father loved the Son with. This is the kind of love that Jesus loved people with. And he says, you need to love others in the same way. Amazing love. How can it be that God himself would die for me? What grace toward us is demonstrated in these simple words, I have loved you, when we were so unlovable and so undeserving. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye, 
through his poverty might be rich. We're rich in Christ. We're rich in our relationship with God through his poverty. What grace, the Bible says. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this. So Jesus says, I have loved you. It puts a lot of emphasis on the words that are being said. The second statement, if you'll go back to our text in John 15, in verse 14, is that I have called you friends. Jesus says in verse 14, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. This statement I have called you friends. What we see in that is the friendship of the Lord. We saw grace in the first, I have loved you. I have called you friends. We see friendship here. To be called friends by the one who is God himself is a great honor indeed. Amen? He says, from here on out, you're no more servants, but you're my friends. Why are you friends? Why can I call you friends? Because the servant doesn't know what his master does. But I'm telling you everything that I have received from my father. Therefore, we are on the same plane. You're my friends. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as God's servant. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 43. We don't have the time to go look at it. But Israel was considered or called God's servant. But Jesus now refers to his disciples as friends. But it goes beyond just that. It goes beyond just being on the same plane, same social standing. It goes beyond that. We are more than that when we're in Christ Jesus. In coming to Christ, we've become sons of God, heirs of God. Yea, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the Bible says. The spectrum of distinction between servant and friends and joint heirs is huge. It's profound. In the New Testament, a servant, doulos is the word, was by law a slave. He didn't have any liberties. He didn't have any rights of his own. To be called a friend considered or compared to a servant was a major transition, and it spoke of being on the same social plane as the Lord. However, in some cases, those who were servants either were transitioned to the social standing of a friend, or sometimes even beyond that, through adoption, the servant would become a son. However, to become a son through adoption, that was the choice of the Lord to bring that former slave into the family. Are you following this here? It was the choice of the Lord to do that. To be a joint heir conveyed that the adopted son now shared all the rights and all the privileges of the begotten son. It was a transformation from the lowest of degrees to the highest of degrees. And that is what Jesus is describing here. 
When he says, I have called you friends, from here on out, you're not a servant, you're a friend. He's describing this transformation from the lowest to the highest. But what can't be missed is this. All right, you following me? Everybody here on the same page? What can't be missed is this. Jesus defined his friends as those who were obedient to him. He says, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Obedience, here's the application. Obedience to Christ forms not only the proof of our love for Christ, but also our friendship with Christ. And it should be exceedingly clear to us that obedience to Jesus Christ is a crucial element in our ongoing fellowship and abiding in Him. He had just gotten done talking about, you've got to abide in me. Obedience to Christ is a crucial element to our fellowship and to our abiding in Him. Jesus, in an effect, right here, He's putting practical application to words that He had just spoken. He is explaining to us what it means to actually abide in Christ. It's more than just remaining in His Word. It's actually being obedient to His Word. You following that? Listen, you can be in God's Word and you can read it every single day, but if you don't take and apply what is on this page to your life in practical application, it does you no good. It's not abiding in Christ. You know a lot of things on a piece of paper, but you don't have the life that it gives in your soul and in your life, the transforming power in your life. Being in God's Word is important, but even more important or of equal importance, is that you've got to obey. And so Jesus is saying this here. He's saying, you got to abide in me, but I'm telling you what it looks like to abide in me. As I have loved you, you love others. And I'm calling you friends, but you're friends if you do what I've commanded you to do. That becomes the basis for discipleship as well as love and friendship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. So we see grace in the first statement. I've loved you. We see friendship in the second. I have called you friends. But then look at verse 16. Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Here's another statement that shows us something. Jesus says, I have chosen you. And what we see in this is we see a responsibility. A responsibility. The responsibility, which by the way, Jesus enables us to fulfill and do. The responsibility is to bear fruit here. He says, I've chosen you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Translated into words that we might understand or use is, in other words, I've chosen you that you would serve me. I've chosen you that you would bring forth fruit or serve me with your life. He's called his disciples friends He's instructed them concerning Himself. 
Now he's expecting them to do something with all of that. He's expecting them to do more than just listen, but now to obey. And that love and that friendship that Jesus is talking about, he says, I've chosen you for that. You haven't chosen me. That love and that friendship needs to ripen now into something more fruitful in your life. And basically what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. You belong to me. I've chosen you. You belong to me. We need to understand something here. And it ties back into last week with the vine and the branches. A fruitless branch never serves the purpose of its existence. The reason the branch exists is to bear fruit. A fruitless branch never serves the purpose of, his, of its existence. Likewise, a barren Christian profession is a misrepresentation of Jesus Christ because it's not bearing fruit. We are chosen and we are ordained to bring forth fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here. Ephesians 2, again, in verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What is the very purpose of this new creation in Christ? To bring forth fruit to, unto good works that God, before He ever even saved you, ordained that you should walk in them. What we need to understand this is this, friend. God wants us to know that He absolutely has a claim on our life. He said, I have bought you. I've purchased you with my blood. Your body is not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. I've chosen you. I have a claim on your life. He wants us to know that we have an obligation towards Him to serve Him. But He wants us to know even more. The reason is because we belong to Him. But it's not just duty. Let's not be mistaken here. It's because He has loved us. He's chosen us and we love Him because He first loved us. The point is simple though. If the fruit of the Spirit is not being made known in our lives, there is something false about us. I've chosen you that you should bring forth fruit. But then you get to verse 17 and we get to the command. The command. Jesus says in verse 17, These things I command you, that ye love one another. I command you, that ye love one another. Jesus says, I command you. I command you. Who has ownership here? I'm getting no feedback. It's just dead. Who's got ownership here? I command you to do what? That you love one another. Love is the bond that ought to hold God's people 
together in the midst of hatred, in the midst of opposition in this world and all things that hate God. Love should be the bond that holds people together. It's the testimony to this world that we belong to Him. It is His commandment that you love one another, which becomes the sum of the whole law of God. Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. It becomes the sum of the whole law of God. The love that Christ is speaking about is a kind of love that you should love one another as I have loved you. The kind of love that he's speaking about is is the kind that's the concern for the well-being of other people. It's an occupation with others instead of an occupation with self. This is exactly what Jesus had been doing with his disciples. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified in less than 24 hours. All of this is going to happen to him. And not once is Jesus speaking of himself or thinking of himself. He's concerned with the well-being of his disciples. It's the care for the welfare of others, a desire to see their needs met and their well-being increased, whether it's physical, whether it's material, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, it's all included. I'm concerned about the well-being of my brother. To be so occupied with another person Or to be so occupied with another, with the same kind of love that Christ is talking about, is supposed to be the calling card or the real badge of Christianity. The way that's to be done is as I have loved you. The Bible tells us by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Love towards others is the outward evidence of the inward desire to follow Jesus Christ. The basis of the evidence that one is a true disciple of Christ is love. Not just any kind of love, but the love that is of Christ that has been made known to us by Christ. We've experienced it from Him towards us, therefore we can give it to others. What kind of love did Christ have? He said, I want you to love others as I have loved you. What kind of love did Jesus Christ have? First of all, it was a sacrificial and unselfish kind of love. Christ's love for us is understood through his example. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 16. 
Hereby perceive we the love of God. He's like, here's how you know. Here's how you understand the love of God. You with me? Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We understand his love by his example. We understand the kind of love that he's talking about that we should have towards others because of his example. Here's how we understand God's love for us. He laid down his life for us. And in the same way, we ought to do the same for the brethren. How is it that we know God's love? God loves us because he demonstrated it sacrificially, unselfishly, he laid down his life. Jesus didn't do all of that he did for himself, but he did do it for others. That is the love that we are to base our love on. And so here's an application. The kind of love that Christ had was sacrificial. It was unselfish. That's the kind we're supposed to have towards others. And let me, let me, let me make it clear, and let me bring it right down to where we live. Genuine love for people doesn't say a bunch of words. It doesn't talk. It acts. Our love for other people is going to be understood in the very same way. Verse 16, we read there, we understand God's love because He laid down His life for the brethren. The last phrase says, here's the application, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So let me ask you the question, how is our love for others proven? How is it understood? In the words, I love you. No. It's proven in the giving of ourselves. Whether that's physical, whether that's mental, whether that's emotional, whether it's spiritual. The giving of ourselves. And listen, genuine love doesn't have limits. I will give, and I will give, and I will give. How do I know that? Because Jesus laid down His life. He gave it all. Godly love for others is not based on whether things are good between us either. I love you as long as things are good between us. That's not what godly love is. Godly love is, is not demonstrated only when all is well and things are happy. You following me? So let me just again bring it down to where we live. Because the truth of the matter is that we're people... There's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be offenses. That's just the plain truth of it. You're not exempt from that. I am. I'm not either. We're going to offend people. But godly love isn't based on whether things are good or all is well and we're happy. And listen, whenever there's offenses that happen, because they're going to happen, often there needs to be a sacrifice of our pride whenever there's a rift that is there because I'm more concerned, I'm more concerned with your well-being than I am with my own. 
I'm more concerned with the well-being of my brother or my sister. I'm more concerned with the well-being of the spirit of the church than I am about my own feelings. Well, you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how I perceived what they did. Oh, often that's the case. And we build it up and we twist it and we blow it all out of proportion and it never even was that to begin with. But now it's a thing because I've made it a thing. But if we're going to follow the command of Christ, you love others like I've loved you. And sometimes that means you've got to sacrifice that pride because I'm more concerned about your spiritual health, your emotional health, your well-being as a person. Most of the time when offenses are even brought to our attention, hey, you said this or you did this, our immediate reaction is, well, I don't think I did anything wrong. And so there's coldness, there's distance, there's attitudes towards another instead of being willing to sacrifice that. And you say, you know what? Sorry you feel that way, whether I did it or not. I want to make it right because I want to make sure that not only are you being loved, but I want to follow my Savior more than anything else. Instead of being willing to sacrifice our pride, though, to talk things out, for the sake of following the command of Christ to love another, we want to hold on to that pride. But Jesus calls us to. He calls us to make that sacrifice because that's what He did for us. And the truth is, this morning, some, some may need to swallow their pride and be humble and be willing to talk some things out for the sake of loving Christ. And loving as Christ did. And friend, when we do that, what Jesus is saying is, that becomes evidence that you're my true disciple. Jesus said, I command you to love one another. What is the implication of that? I command you. What if we don't? The implication then is that if we don't and we choose not to love one another, we become rebellious against the Lord Jesus Christ. I command you. It's not optional. Otherwise, we become rebellious against the rule of Jesus Christ in our life. The Word of God constantly exhorts us to love one another. We're in 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 4, and I'll finish up with this. 1 John 4, and look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love others. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. The Word of God exhorts us to love one another. Verse 7 tells us that love is evidence of a new birth. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Love is evidence of real salvation, evidence of a new birth. Verses 8 through 10 show us it's evidence of us knowing God, having fellowship with God. Verse, verse 8 says, he that, lo- he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's evidence that we know God. Verse 11 tells us this evidence of appreciation of being loved of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love the brethren. I appreciate what God has done for me. In his love toward me. And then verse 12, love is evidence of maturity in our Christian faith. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. What's the point? The point is, is that godly love is an evidence of discipleship. And it's different than fleshly kind of love. Fleshly love is unstable. It changes as attitudes and circumstances change, but not God's love. And we come to the end, and we've got to ask ourselves a question. Can we honestly say that we love others as we should? Can we honestly say that we are loving others like Christ has loved me? If I want to be all that He has saved me to be, then I need to be obedient to this command. I command you, love one another. We need God's grace in order to be obedient. But here's the great part. He provides it. He gives it. And He enables us to do what He has commanded us to do. Amen? What a great God He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, use Your Word. And Lord, give us Your grace to be obedient. Give us Your enabling to fulfill our purpose, the thing for which You give us life. And Lord, this morning, if there are issues that need to be dealt with or attitudes of the heart that haven't been resolved or changed towards one another. Lord, I pray that you, through your Spirit, would draw to bring about a soft and a tender response.
Lord, may there be a heart to be obedient, to obey the command, to not be in rebellion. Lord, when we consider what Christ has done for us, Lord, how could we not have appreciation in return? Say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You've done everything for me. And the obedience and the command that Christ is asking of His people is not one of a slave, but one of a friend. That willingly, gladly, yieldedly obeys. Lord, give us Your grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>